morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for <clears throat> coming here in person. And thank you, everyone in Zoom land. <clears throat> First, I want to thank you, Galen Roshi, for your kindness to me, your teachings, <laughs> your strength, your tireless work, sustaining uh, auspicious cloud and auspicious cloud west now for being our fearless leader and <laughs> for keeping us together. <clears throat> and I want to begin by saying that I am forever thankful <clears throat> for these teachings and to all beings who have been and are teachers and Dharma friends to me, including um, my non-human friends. <clears throat> my husband asked me what the subject of this Dharma talk would be. Um, when I said equanimity, he laughed. <laughs> and, and I laughed with him. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Something about me talking about equanimity. <laughs> and, <clears throat> the topic of this talk came from a meeting with Galen Roshi, where I had told her um, how I one day had hoped to um, come to indifference to difficult people in my life. And she stopped me right then and there and said in that understated, wry way of hers, indifference, the near enemy of equanimity. <laughs> oh, equanimity. Are you sure you don't mean equanimity? <laughs> I offer this talk as a personal observation and um, understanding of equanimity to me. It's a quality that is elusive to me, <clears throat> though now after months of uh, study and meditation, it's a little less vague and distant. I think that it is incongruous that I should speak about equanimity being a uh, nervous, emotional type. But uh, this is to the point. And uh, I have um, come to appreciate studying equanimity. And I hope that, and it's been useful to me. I hope that it, this talk is useful to you and um, that you are inspired um, in your practice. As Galen and others have said, equanimity is intrinsically linked to the first three Brahmaviharas, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. As a reminder, the four Brahmaviharas are the uh, state of the heart, uh, the basis of an awakened mind. 
And I can't imagine how one could experience equanimity without loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. I think ease of heart is what gives rise to equanimity. In the beginning, it was difficult for me to even resonate with the word equanimity. It was hard for me to imagine um, what it looked like and felt like, except as the formal serenity carved in stone or painted in the depictions of the Buddha. Uh, I think that I have seen it like in some uh, human beings. For me, it is the foremost characteristic of a fully developed adult human being, which I find is a fairly rare creature to me. It's also remote to me because as a typical human being, um, I have been deeply imprinted with and I feel pressured to act upon the belief that is my primary duty and responsibility to build a strong, independent individual self and set off on the quest for to gain as much pleasure and avoid as much pain as possible. And success as a human being is measured by this. We have all heard that uh, human birth is a traumatic, painful event, so much so that the moments are obliterated from the memory of the mother and the child uh, who remembers uh, life, uh, who remembers entering this life in birth. And, um, And then consider this, soon after the traumatic event, we are showered with care and attention to our every need Perhaps it was then that our minds were imprinted with and mistook the care and attention to relieve pain and give the pleasure of comfort to be the primary pursuit in life. Whatever the story is, all human beings seem to have been, have deeply taken into themselves this conception and it sets up the belief that life is about getting. I think becoming a real adult may first begin with understanding the fallacy of this conception. Now then, in Buddhism, the frame of reference is very different. You see, equanimity is based on giving, not getting. In fact, everything in Buddhism is based on giving. Loving kindness, Compassion and sympathetic joy are all forms of giving. They are acts of love. Likewise, the Buddhist response to pain is very different. The teaching is to openly meet pain. In other words, to give compassion to pain. Of course, it goes without saying that this is a very difficult teaching to practice. It is really challenging to not flinch or turn away from pain. In my case, I usually find myself smacked up against the brick wall that is squirming to avoid pain. I'm sure you'll remember that only creates more pain until it becomes so painful that I just have to give in, surrender, and 
simply need it. For me, there is a mysterious turn to needing pain or a difficulty. It's not easy to, des to describe, but let me put it this way. I would not think that openly meeting what you naturally flinch away from would result in a gift in response. What is it that responds back? Is it the pain that was met? I don't really know, but in my case, whenever I finally open to meeting a difficulty, when I do not turn away, I receive an invaluable gift in return. <clears throat> what a marvelous display of the responsiveness of generosity. This giving and receiving, it's, it's easy to understand the happiness from giving love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, but it's not so easy to see the deep wonder of humility and consequent joy from not turning away from a pain. An old friend of the Houston Zen Center, Bhikkhu Bodhi, says that equanimity in its most developed ultimate form is an evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, inner equity voice that cannot be upset by gain or loss, honor or dishonor, praise or blame, pleasure or pain. It is freedom from all points of self-reference. It is the pinnacle of the four Brahmaviharas, for it perfects and consummates the first three. Upeka in Bali, translated as equanimity, means to look over it's called an action of observation, to see without being caught by what you see. Habitually, we stand on the ground based on what we see and feel, based on our reactive version of reality. To not be caught by what you see implies that you're standing on a different ground. There is something else that you rely on. So here's a question. What ground do you stand on when you question your version of reality? Another way equanimity is translated is to stand in the middle. When you stand in the middle of something that is constantly moving, as does the phenomena of life, well, this is an act of balancing. All of our lives, we're learning to stand in the middle of our fast-spinning lives, coming at us from every which way with sensations, perceptions, and conceptions of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. I find it useful to remember that the Brahma Viharas are considered mind training practices. Equanimity encompasses both mental and emotional equipoise. When I get caught and entangled with life, if I simply start asking myself questions, there's an immediate shift. In other words, I get a new sense of my bearings. I pull back from a myopically close view that was all about me and it, whatever it was. Asking questions is an incitement to research. Research is leads to looking. 
and looking to discovery. I ask myself, what's going on here? What is this story I'm telling myself? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I really saying here? The shift that comes about is both mental and emotional. This is one way that I understand how to approach equanimity. After living with these types of experiences for years, I see I'm beginning to understand the nature and reality of suffering in myself and in others. One day, we come to accept the responsibility of meeting our lives when we understand what causes us distress and how to end the distress and begin taking good care of ourselves. Here's a quote from Johann Wolfgang Goethe that describes what I understand as taking good care of myself. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether the crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. Gail gave us a good analogy of equipoise in one of her talks on the Brahma Viharas. She described that equanimity reminded her of the practice of the yoga asana tree pose. In tree pose, you balance on one leg. Now, if you recall what it's like when you balance, you're, you know balancing is never still. In balance, you're only in balance for one moment. And then the next moment, you're leaning a little bit this way or that way. So in order to balance, you must counterbalance. So balancing is always a correction or a counterbalance. It's an ongoing subtle movement that appears to be still only when you stand back and look at it from a distance. And so too, it must be with mental and emotional equipoise. Honestly, when I look closely, I find that I lean one way or another in relation to most people and events in my life. When leaning in or leaning away, if I persist in that stance, trying to touch or actively turning away, I eventually find myself caught, entangled, and then I struggle and squirm to escape the suffering that without fail ensues. From getting caught and trying to get free. <laughs> and sometimes, it seems that I'm caught in the same types of knots over and over again with the same lesson. When I used to see this, my initial reaction was dismay. I would say, you're hopeless. But these days, I'm beginning to appreciate the very polarity of my thinking and feeling. The thinking and feeling good and bad, right and wrong, striving to promote one over the other, because they are all glaringly useful pointers. They are showing me where I am, showing me my place. And this is the way that I can find 
to balance by seeing my imbalance. And it's not really true that it's the same lesson over and over. It's just that some knots have tight, complicated twists and turns. And you know, it's not really that I'm dumb. It's that I'm wonderfully stubborn. I am tenacious. <laughs> These are difficult lessons and one needs tenacity. But most marvelous of all, you see, is a sense I have as if an unseen presence loves me so much, they are teaching me the lesson very patiently and very thoroughly, making sure I untie the knot. And I would guess that it's the same for you. <laughs> I say it's a really good idea to respect this and to say thank you for teaching me all about this knot ever so patiently. Here is a wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks so beautiful is because it is out of balance, but its background is always in perfect harmony. This is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature, losing its balance against a background of perfect balance. So you see, so if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life, end quote. I don't think I would ever have an inkling in my body and mind of what equanimity could be without the practice of sazen. And indeed, it is said that equanimity is cultivated by Zazen. All of our teachings, all the Zen teachings and practices were born from Zazen. Zazen is sitting in the middle of everything, moving, sitting still and silent in the middle of this life, is finding compassion, is seeing the futility, violence, and vanity of resistance, is discovering the love in your heart for everything, is discovering the end of your struggle, the happy relief that you were just plain wrong, your view was erroneous. Another aspect of equanimity, I think, brought out by the practice of silence and stillness is clarity of mind. I have taken up the practice of silence and stillness for years now, but I did not see what clarity of mind could be until last year. I don't know it well, but what I can say now is that it seems as if my point of view encompasses a larger, broader scope, as if I could focus on a larger field of vision all at once. And from this, I can more clearly discern how to align myself with my deepest concern, which is now within my field of vision, no longer in the background. And this to me is clarity of, vision, of mind clarity of mind, because I can remember my deepest and wish most cons more consistently. <clears throat> the last aspect I will talk about is that I associate with equanimity and being still in the middle of everything is the freedom to pivot, 
standing with no fixed position, free to respond, unchained from compulsive or habitual reactions. Here is a story to illustrate what I feel was the moment of freedom to pivot that happened not so long ago. One time during a, <clears throat> a meeting with visiting dignitaries at work, we were discussing something and a colleague snapped scornfully at me, mocking something I had just said. In the jolt of that moment, everything began to move in slow motion as I looked into that person's eyes. I felt a deep pause in somehow, I don't know how. Internally, it was as if I stepped back and then leaned back comfortably as if I were on a couch. My body felt like the space between the molecules of the body were expanding as if the body dispersed into tiny particles and I felt big. I also felt I was becoming transparent. The words just passed right through me. Then there was a palpable moment of silence in the room and the person abruptly apologized, covering their embarrassment by saying that having to wear a mask makes them unwittingly yell. Somehow, even though I did feel the painful sting of the words and the tone of voice, the words did not stick to me. I don't know why, instead of resisting the words, I seemed to lean back and recline. In the, in the next moment, I clearly recognized the blurry veil of pain that habitually glazes this person's eyes. And because I see it all the time, I tend to ignore. And next, I saw the wave of embarrassment suffusing their face. I did not touch the moment or turn away. Respectfully, I let all of it be. Now, it just seems miraculous that I could stay there without a story and be somehow immutable and moved at the same time. How interesting. How is it to be mutable and, in, and moved at the same time? Of course, I have no idea how any of this came about, but I have noticed that sometimes when I see something I have never seen before, it feels that it is coming from a source other than myself. And here's something else. I wonder how it is related because it certainly is. <clears throat> to the dreams that I had been having weeks before this happened of seeing molecules of oxygen moving through my veins and my body becoming transparent. Was something outside my conscious mind already giving me messages about this lesson of the freedom to pivot? Whatever the case, I am so grateful. <laughs> and it was a true happiness to have felt momentarily completely comfortable and strangely fearless precisely when feeling pain as someone snapped at and mocked me. Now, this feeling of my body expanding and dispersing into tiny particles and becoming transparent is interesting in another way. To me, it is a kind of confirmation of the experience of the insubstantiality of the self. To me, it's in those moments of feeling transparent 
It was as if there was no one there to be labeled or clothed by the mocking words. And what is more, with this, I also felt something of the insubstantiality of the self of the person who spoke those words. In other words, something about no mocked and no mocker, something about no blame. The insubstantiality of both of us became a real possibility. For me, this is a clear example of the upside downness and backwardness of the way I often live. I unconsciously and even consciously believe that others have a solid self and that having a solid self is what will allow me to feel secure, safe, and real. But this experience proved to be the exact opposite. Even momentarily sensing the insubstantiality of the self brought with it the experience of stability and security. Simultaneously with the ability and freedom to pivot Surely what awaits us and others with understanding the reality of no inherent self or other is freedom, liberation, and peace. This is a true life story of Hakumin Ekaku, Japanese Zen master living from 1686 and 1769 used as the demonstration of equanimity in the face of blame and praise. Hakuin had an interesting life, and you might want to look him up. Unlike many Zen masters, we have a, unlike many Zen masters, <laughs> we have a full account of his life because he wrote an uh, autobiography, a spiritual autobiography. Briefly, I will just say this about him. He believed that understanding arises out of everyday life, that that arises from everyday life was deeper than understanding that could come from practicing in the monastery since lay people faced more distractions, held more responsibilities and experienced more heartbreak than monks. And so they needed to practice with great diligence. This story is called, Is That So? Hakuin was falsely accused of impregnating a young girl who lived in the village near his monastery. When her parents and villagers came to accuse and berate him, he simply said, is that so? When the child was born, it was brought to him to raise. Hakuin cared for it and with the help of a nursemaid. Sometime later, the young woman couldn't stand it any longer and confessed that the father was a young man from the village. In the meantime, Hakuin lost his good reputation and many of his students over this incident. Now the parents and villagers who had insulted him earlier came to apologize and to praise him as a most excellent master. He by all he he by all of the, all of this time and he at by this time had come to love the baby, but they had also come to take the baby away. And with all of this, he simply said, is that so? It's good. The baby has a father. I, um, a commentary I read about the story, called this a love story. Love without an object of love. Hakuin trusted and loved enough to embrace each changing situation without judgment, with no self to defend, simply accommodating to what was in front of him. 
He responded, like the sacred element of water. This is from Taoist Chuang Tzu, disciple of Lao Tzu. As you might know, Taoism greatly influenced Zen. Quote, when water is still, it is like a mirror reflecting the beard and eyebrows. It gives the accuracy of the water level and the philosopher makes it his model. And if water thus derives its lucidity from stillness, how much more the faculties of the mind. The mind of the sage being in repose becomes the mirror of the universe, the speculum of all creation. The fluidity of water is not the result of any effort on the part of the water, but is its natural property. And the virtue of the perfect man is such that even without cultivation, there is nothing that can withdraw from his sway. Heaven is naturally high. The earth is naturally solid. The sun and moon are naturally bright. Do they cultivate these attributes? End quote. Well, we may say this is all really lovely, but that it's highly unlikely we could ever be capable of responding in this way. Dream on, because I am not a saint. And Hakuim demonstrates qualities of a saint. But something tells me that this is not a helpful way to think about this. Somehow we must aspire to what seems impossible. Look at the troubles at our collective doorstep from the consequences of hatred, greed, and delusion. What with climate change, economic and social inequality, and all the rest of it. What more loving, compassionate, joyous, and equitable way to respond to the burning cries of the world that, than that with our highest aspirations. Then, when you get right down to it, what is a saint? A saint is born a human being like you and me. It doesn't matter where we begin. We begin where we begin as we are. We can only just be here now and face what the moment presents now. I suspect this is how a saint began to respond as a saint. Even a small amount, a small moment of kindness, compassion, and understanding goes a long way. It is said that it goes a much longer way than we can imagine. And then, you know, it's not, it really is our way. This is our way. We have thrown our hearts up in the air like so many birds soaring with the most beautiful, impossible vows under our wings. We vow to liberate numberless beings, enter boundless dharma gates, and cut through inexhaustible delusions. This is the great work that we want to do. This is the great work that we love to do. In the final analysis, you see all the humans of the world have impossible aims, impossible wishes, or impossible vows. One aim is completely unachievable against the nature of reality, while the other aim manifests in an unimaginable way and never reaches the other shore. One brings you pretty much an unadulterated cycle of misery, but the other brings you gifts of love, compassion, joy, equanimity, clarity, 
peace and freedom. Let me end by saying, with the support of each other and the eternal spring of our impossibly beautiful vows, may we continue with the great work of the Bodhisattvas. Quoting from Lao Tzu, remembering silence and stillness, may we find ease in our hearts like the ease of water the most gentle thing in the world that overrides the most hard. Nothing in the world is weaker than water, but it has no better in overcoming the hard. <laughs>